Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, focused on exploring innovative treatment approaches for people living with bladder cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the diagnosis and treatment of bladder cancer with Dr. John Kohlberg. Dr. Kohlberg is a professor of urology and director of urologic oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. John, you know, maybe we can start off by talking a little bit more about bladder cancer. It certainly isn't uh, one of the most common cancers that we think about. Um, So tell us a little bit more about it. How common is it? Who gets it? And how deadly is it? Well, I think it's, um, if you look at non-skin cancer um, um, cancers, it's the fifth most common cancer that we diagnose. Um, It's the fourth most common in males. About 80,000 cases are diagnosed a year. Um, The vast majority of them are male, about 62,000 versus 19,000 for women. Um, The average age of diagnosis is 73. Um, The chance of a a man getting bladder cancer is about 1 out of 27, and for for a woman, about 1 out of 80. Wow. Wow. So, you know, when you think about it, you know, being in the top five, uh, it actually might be more common than many people realize. So what are the risk factors? Are there are there modifiable things that uh, people uh, should be thinking about that may predispose to bladder cancer? Absolutely. I think the biggest one is cigarette smoking. Um, A cigarette smoker has a three times greater chance of developing bladder cancer. Um, there's some environmental um, and workplace exposures that you want, may want to think about. Um, like this what? Includes, this includes people who work around aniline dyes, uh, textiles, um, uh, maybe professions of, of painters, um, truck drivers. Um, and, and on top of that, a lot of these people also smoke, so they're at a, a much higher risk of developing bladder cancer. Now, there's no predisposed or genetic factors per se. Um, Most of them are are related to um, um, being turned on by cigarette smoking or environmental exposures. You know, I think uh, with the cigarette smoking, and I'd like to come back to that uh, in terms of uh, cumulative risk and and whether quitting smoking actually reduces your risk. But in terms of workplace exposures, you know, oftentimes if you're a painter or you're a truck driver, you know, that's your your livelihood. Are are there things that people are doing to reduce um, some of the exposures that people get uh, to various chemicals uh, associated? with these occupations. So for example, are, are there, you know, governmental bans on some of these chemicals that may be found in um, paints and dyes and so on? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think that um, we've, ex- there's a fairly delayed response to getting the cancer after this exposure. So a lot of these men and women we see have been exposed 20 or 30 years ago or 40 years ago when there weren't a lot of um, restrictions and and new laws in place to prevent or from limiting their exposure. Um, But some of them, you know, you know, truck drivers are exposed to diesel fuel or, um, 
people who work in the dry cleaning business are exposed to certain type of naphthalene dyes that that are caused cause it. So um, I think that we're more aware of the exposures now, and certainly cigarette smoking. I mean, it's easy. It's pretty easy to say that to, to stop smoking. Yeah. And sadly, though, there there really is no uh, legal restrictions on, on smoking. And so it really is up to people to take control of their own health. Um, with regards to cigarette smoking, though, one of the questions that often comes up is, you know, people who have engaged in smoking often find it very difficult to quit. And so they say, you know what, if I've already been smoking for 10, 15, 20 years, I mean, the damage is already done. So, um, you know, why bother quitting smoking? Is the risk of bladder cancer cumulative? In other words, you know, uh you keep adding to that risk the more you smoke. And after a certain point, if you've, say, quit for five or 10 years, your your risk uh, goes back down? Or is it that, you know, cigarette smoking causes uh, damage that once done is done? And even if you quit smoking at that point, um, you're still at risk of, of developing bladder cancer. I don't think we know that for certain, but cert- but certainly patients who stop smoking, um, I think the recurrence of the bladder cancer goes down. So I think that even though it may not completely absolve them from getting more bladder cancer, it, it certainly will help them. And so the other thing that's interesting is that you mentioned that there was this, you know, gender difference in terms of bladder cancer with more men getting bladder cancer than women. I wonder whether that's related to differences in smoking. And now that we are beginning to see more and more women smoking, whether they've seen anything change in terms of uh, the risk of women developing bladder cancers. I think that's a reasonable uh, supposition. We don't see that yet, uh, but I think that that, like other type of cancer, that may take several years to kind of catch up. The other question we, we've seen in other cancers, there be a synergistic effect between alcohol and uh, smoking in terms of uh, cancer risk. Do we see that in bladder cancer too, or is it really the environmental uh, and occupational exposures uh, instead of alcohol? I don't think we've seen that with alcohol and bladder cancer. Yeah. And so um, has the risk, is the risk higher with people who have an occupational um, risk uh, like, uh, you know, being exposed to various chemicals in the workplace, if they are also smokers, is that not just additive, but a synergistic risk? Or um, is it just is it just like, you know, uh, an additive risk? I don't think we know for certain, but I think that anecdotally it's a, it's synergy. So if you typically the, the worst the worst cancers we see tend to be in people who have environmental exposures and they smoke. Yeah. And so do we ever see bladder cancer in people who don't have one of those two risk factors? Yes, absolutely. And are their cancers different than than those others in terms of how they look biologically, how they do, how they behave and so on? I don't think we know that for certain. But 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 you know, again, not everybody that smokes gets bladder cancer. Right. 
And, and some people, I guess, who get bladder cancer don't smoke. So, um, but I guess the, the, the definitive message is if you smoke, you're at greater risk of getting bladder cancer. And so doing what you can to quit smoking may help you either to avoid getting bladder cancer to begin with and or reducing your risk of getting a recurrence. Correct. So let's talk a little bit about bladder cancer in terms of how it presents. So um, how, how, how do people actually develop bladder cancer? What symptoms uh, does that present with? Typically, people who present with bladder cancer present with blood in the urine or something we call hematuria. That can be microscopic, meaning only found when you look under the microscope for it, or it can be something called gross hematuria where they actually the patient sees the blood in their urine. So, so two questions there. The first question is, you know, sometimes when people um, find blood in their urine, they assume that that's something like, you know, a kidney stone or something like that. Um, how do you differentiate that from a bladder cancer? And how do you actually find microscopic hematuria that you can't really see? Is that something that would then cause people to present very late? I mean, how is that picked up? Well, I think that um, if you have symptoms, uh, maybe of an infection or pain or your urination pattern changes. Um, some people will look at urinalysis and see if there's microscopic hematuria. Um, that's one way that we, we find it, but a lot, of, a lot of people just present with blood in the urine, and, and uh, um, that's how they initially present. And so in either of those two circumstances, either you have symptoms of an infection or pain or, you know, frequency of going, um, or you actually see blood in your urine, you, you go to your family doctor and they do a, a urine test, they find blood in your urine. What's the next step? Well, I think the first thing you want to look at is do they have, do they have symptoms of an infection? Um, so if they have in, symptoms of infection, then you treat the infection, the, the blood blood should go away. If it doesn't go away or the symptoms um, don't doesn't get better after treating the infection, then you need a what we call a workup of the, the blood in the urine. And that workup usually entails um, some type of an x-ray study like a CT scan or an MRI um, because you can bleed from any part of the urinary tract, the lining of the kidneys, the kidney itself, the tubes that drain the kidneys called the ureter, the bladder itself, so that you want to image or, or, or look at the kidneys and the ureter with a CT scan, we call them a CT urogram or an MR, an MR urogram. And then you also want to look into the bladder. And that's usually an office procedure where you take a small telescope with a light at the end of it and actually look into the bladder and can visualize the lining of the bladder. And so, and so if you do that, you know, people often ask, what is, what does cancer look like? Well, what you'll see in the bladder is you'll see what we call a tumor or growth. You'll actually um, see it emanating from the bladder wall. It may look like a little cauliflower, a little, like a little papillary growth in the bladder, or it could be something subtle as a redness in the bladder or it could be like a solid mass in the bladder. So, and all those are related to um, what those 
that looks like under the microscope once you take that out. Because lower grade tumors uh, tend to be more papillary, meaning they're not as aggressive. Um, and higher grade tumors tend to be more, be more solid. So how do you exactly take out this cancer in order to find out on the microscope what it looks like? That sounds like a biopsy to me. So how, how exactly is that done? Correct. So what we do is we usually schedule the person for an, an operation in the operating room with, with the anesthesia so that um, you uh, go in with a telescope, a little bigger telescope, and through that telescope, we're able to trim or cut the, the tissue out. Um, usually you can remove the tumor, all the tumor itself, and then we take that tissue and send to the pathology so they can analyze it. So it sounds like that's a little operation, not a big operation, because you're still using a telescope. It doesn't sound like this is a, a big cut in the abdomen and you're removing the bladder. It sounds it sounds uh, minimally invasive. Is that right? Yes. So it's, it's what we call an endoscopic procedure. Oftentimes they're done as an outpatient. Occasionally, the patient will acquire a tube in the bladder overnight or for a couple of days, depending on how um, how much you have to do. Um, the real risks of the procedure are bleeding, because uh, obviously you cut with tissue, but you're able to also cauterize the area. Um, rarely, um, an opening in the bladder can be created that that you what we call perforate the bladder, uh, but those are very uncommon. Well, we're going to pick up right after we take a short break for a medical minute, learning more about what happens after the diagnosis of bladder cancer with my guest, Dr. John Kohlberg. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients living with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, pancreatic, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. John Kohlberg. We're talking about the diagnosis and treatment of bladder cancer. And right before the break, John, you were telling us about this minimally invasive endoscopic biopsy that's done to diagnose bladder cancers. So I want to pick it up there. Um, when people have this outpatient procedure to diagnose bladder cancers, how long does it actually take to get that diagnosis back? It usually takes about three to five days. It all depends on um, how complicated or how uh, if there's some 
um, differences in, in what exactly the pathologies of the pathologist may need to do some special stains or, or special studies to really nail down exactly what type of tumor it is. Yeah, so that brings me to that next question, which is, are there different types of bladder cancer or is this a, a, a homogeneous disease? It sounds like there's, there's different types. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. There, there's basically three different types of bladder cancer. There are two very uncommon, rare types of cancers. They're called squamous cell cancers. They typically occur in, in, in men or women who have chronic inflammation, in, infections, um, maybe a tube in the bladder for long periods of time. Um, the second type is called an adenocarcinoma. They're, again, very uncommon. They usually occur in, in the top of the bladder, a little structure that connects uh, the belly button called the urachus. The vast majority of, of bladder cancers are what we call urothelial cancers or transitional cell cancers. And it's really important the pathologist tells you three things. What type of tumor it is, what the grade of the tumor is, meaning what it looks like under the microscope. Is it high grade or is it low grade? And thirdly, he will tell you what we call the depth of invasion, meaning how deep does it penetrate that bladder wall? Is it what we call superficial, meaning just involving the top layer or the, the layer right behind the top layer called the lamina propria, or is it into the muscle? Because depending on what the grade is, high grade, low grade, and depending on how the depth of invasion will will dictate or tell us exactly what the next steps or steps will be. So tell us more about that. Uh, I mean, how, how, wh how, what's the algorithm look like? Sure. So, so if someone has what we call low-grade superficial bladder cancer, and it's small, meaning less than two or three centimeters, most people will just, urologists will just follow those patients, meaning they will put them on a surveillance protocol, meaning they'll come back to the office every three to six months and look into the bladder. Because what we know about bladder cancer is that they, it recurs, the recurrence rate's qu quite high. So that you want to make sure that you follow these men and women so you can pick up if it does come back at an early stage, so it doesn't progress into a higher grade tumor or a muscle invasive tumor. So let me just stop you there for, for one second. So if they did a biopsy and they've just taken a piece of this cancer, before they put you on this regimen of surveillance, do they actually need to go and take out the whole tumor? Or is this something that they can just watch like a prostate cancer, for example, um, because it, it tends to be indolent? So typically when you go in for the to take the tumor out, you do more than a biopsy. You actually resect the whole tumor if you can. So usually for a low-grade tumor and you have muscle in the specimen and there's no muscle involved, then 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 you're you're basically done. You don't have to go back again. Now there's some caveats to that. If it's a higher grade tumor and you don't have muscle involved, you will go back and restage or re re-resect that tumor to, to make sure that it's not under the muscle. So for higher grade tumors, but no involvement of muscle. Um, you may want to consider what we call intravesical or treatment on the bladder with certain type, different types of medication. 
Um, usually it's installed over uh, once a week for six weeks. The, the medication we typically use is something called BCG. It's a, it's a mycobacterium that causes tuberculosis. And what it does, it sets up an immune response of your own body to, to cut down on the recurrence of the tumor. Um, if it is high-grade and muscle-invasive, then that changes the whole scenario as far as your treatment algorithm. So what, I'm I'm going to get to uh, what we do if it's invaded the muscle, but the whole concept of installation of BCG and the fact that it's a, a mycobacterium kind of like TB brings up a lot of questions that I think our, our listeners might be asking themselves. So, for example, if you get this, um, does that put you at risk of actually getting tuberculosis, number one? And number two, if you've already had TB in the past, does that reduce your risk of getting bladder cancer if the chemical that we use or, or the, the um, medication that we use uh, is actually a mycobacterium? You know, people have looked at that because there's several countries outside the United States that, that actually that vaccinate people for TB. So it doesn't appear to to be a, a prevent you from getting bladder cancer. There is a small risk that you can get what we call BCGosis or systemic BCG from the treatment. It's very, very rare. And it's usually associated with the insulation of the medication, meaning that when you put the medication in, it's a you have to put it use it you have to put it through a catheter so you have to place a catheter in the bladder which is a small tube and most of the cases of systemic or BCG has been related to what we call a traumatic catheterization, meaning that when you put the catheter in, it's been difficult to put in. You've gotten blood back from the catheter, and the inject and the medication injected under some force, and 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 obviously you don't want to do that. So typically in our office, if if someone places a catheter and they they get blood during the catheterization, they will not give that the treatment that day. And so, John, just just another question. I mean, why is it that we use BCG? I mean, when we think about cancer and talk about cancer on this show so much, oftentimes when we're thinking about medications to treat uh, cancer, we're thinking about chemotherapy. Rarely do we actually think about something like BCG or a, a, a mycobacterium. Yeah, so, so it's thought to set, set up this immune response, which is kind of a hot topic with a lot of cancers now. BCG's been around from since the early 1980s, and it's been shown to cut down on the, the, the incidence of, of, of recurrence by about 50%. There are other medications used intravascularly, um, and those tend to be, quote, chemotherapy agents, meaning they kill on contact. We use mitomycin, gemcitabine, doxytaxol, something called valrubicin, but they're still their 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 the response rates are not as good as BCG. So, because of this immune response that it sets up, it sounds like that's really the mechanism by which it affects these cancers. Which brings me to the question of: Well, does immunotherapy work more in these patients, um, where where the immune system is kind of revved up uh, all by itself as well? See, so, so yes, yeah, so that's the that's the hot topic in bladder cancer right now, and the, the, there's two situations where we'd use immunotherapy. One is for 
men or women who have failed BCG, but still have superficial disease and something called CIS or carcinoma in situ, which is kind of a its own sliver of bladder cancer. Um, and, and there's been a there it's been approved. Uh, pembrolizumide has been approved for, for patients in that particular case. It's also been approved for for people who failed or who are ineligible to receive um, chemotherapy for invasive disease. So we, we're starting to use it more and more in more advanced bladder cancer. And so let's let's talk a little bit more about the advanced bladder cancer. When you say more advanced, do you mean invading the muscle, which is where we kind of left off in that algorithm? Correct. So you're talking about what we call T2 or higher stage bladder cancer, meaning it's into the muscle layer of the bladder as seen on the pathology from the resection that you did with the telescope. And so how are those patients treated? Well, so in the old days, um, we would just take their bladders out or we'd radiate the bladders. We found that, that the success rate or survival was, was, was pretty poor, less than 50% five-year survival. So about 15 years ago, there were a couple of very good studies that have looked at using what we call chemotherapy, both either in the adjuvant setting or the neoadjuvant setting, meaning before or after surgery. And this improved the survival by significantly. So that's been kind of the standard um, treatment for most people with invasive bladder cancer is to receive some form of chemotherapy, preferably before surgery, before you take the bladder out. And typically the regimens will include either a two-drug regimen called cisplatinum and gemcitabine or MVAC, which is short for a methotrexate, finblastine, adromycin, and cisplatinum. So, you know, a lot of patients, when you talk to them about neoadjuvant chemotherapy or getting chemotherapy before surgery, say, well, why would I need the surgery then if I'm taking the chemotherapy up front? Could that kill off all of the cancer cells and then maybe I can save myself having the surgery, especially if that means that you won't have to take out my bladder? And that's, that's a great question, and people ask that all the time. And there is a um, response rate of probably 30% where people actually become what we call P0, meaning if you do take their bladders out, there will be no cancer in the specimen. Um, the, there are two issues. One, you've got to be very careful because it's oftentimes hard to determine whether they have recurrent disease or not in their bladder. And two, even though you don't take their bladders out and the disease may be cured, it still can recur. So for some patients, it's a option, but it's not one we usually recommend. And so it sounds like, and I guess the other thing is that you don't really know that every single solitary cell of that cancer has disappeared uh, after chemotherapy unless you look at every single cell, which often means doing more surgery. Um, so does the surgery mean taking out the whole bladder? Is there ever a time when you can take out just a part of the bladder and, and put it back together again? Absolutely. So there, there are certain tumors that, and it all depends on the location. If it's what we call it the dome of the bladder, meaning that 
top part of the bladder where you can get good margins, you can do a partial cystectomy. Unfortunately, that's not where the majority of the bladder tumors will form. So um, the chance of um, just doing a partial cystectomy in patients um, is is pretty low. But in my practice, if I see three or four patients a year, that's probably a lot that are candidates for partial cystectomies. But yes, you can do a partial cystectomy if it's in the right location. And so for the rest of the people, that means that you're taking out their whole bladder. And so the question obviously becomes, um, what does that mean for me in terms of my quality of life? I mean, does this mean a stoma? Uh, I mean, how, how does that work exactly? So, so there, are, there are three options when you take someone's bladder out as far as where the urine goes. One is a stoma, where we take a small piece of small intestine. And we connect the tubes from the kidneys and bring it out to the skin so it drains into into a bag uh, 24 hours, 7 days a week. You can make a continent stoma, meaning you take part of the patient's right colon and put the ureters in and you bring a, a small piece of intestines up that, and they actually catheterize that stoma 4 to 6 times a day. And thirdly, you can actually make a new bladder where you take several centimeters of small intestine, you fashion it into a sphere, and you sew it down where the urethra is so everything's on the inside so they urinate normally without a bag or without a stoma. Dr. John Kohlberg is a professor of urology and director of urologic oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.